1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Here we have a quiet little motel, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Can you have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know, this is the first place that looks like it's hiding from the world. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. She's run away. Put me down. Mother, oh God, mother! What are you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a, a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spatero, and today I am joined by two big movie fans. Uh, it is the return of Blaine Dowler. Welcome aboard, Blaine. Thanks for having me back. Uh, my pleasure, as always. And for the first time on Is It Yours, and probably not the last, uh, Mr. Trey Hooks joins us. Thank you for the invite, Paul. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Now, uh, people may or may not know that Blaine and Trey have started... Uh, work on a brand new show that's going to slowly roll out, as we were just talking about before we started to record. Uh, and why don't you guys tell everybody about that before we start talking about what we're here for today? 
so the podcast is 99 years 100 films we're going to be going through every best picture winner from the academy awards talking about you know why we felt it won that award and if at this point in time looking backwards we agree with the academy's choice so that launches in december of 2019 and it's a monthly podcast so we should have regular releases right up until we cover all 100 years and if you're not sure how we can have 100 winners in 99 years well we explain that in episode one which i've had the pleasure of already listening to uh so i i I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy from these guys and uh, i'm going to tell you certainly gets my thumbs up thank you very much so i'm looking forward to listening i have to tell you you know as much of a movie fan as i am uh some of the earlier winners and releases don't captivate me (laughs) uh so that's going to be more or less the the burden is going to be on your shoulders to talk interestingly about movies that i'm not quite as interested in Uh, once you start getting into the meat of it i think i'm going to be you know attracted not only by the discussions you guys are having but by the movies themselves as you start talking about movies that that are beloved to me then i'm going to be wanting to listen for the movies as you know as well as the banter between you two gents uh, and then we're going to get to a point, and we, I think, Blaine, I think you and I have actually discussed this already. We're going to get to a point where I feel like the Academy, uh, for lack of a better word, sold out to pretentiousness. Uh, and you're going to get to movies that I don't, I absolutely feel do not deserve to have won Best Picture. And it's going to be interesting to hear your takes on those and what you guys think. And uh, if you disagree with me, you know, if, if you can present arguments that will win me over or, or if I'm going to feel you guys sold out as well. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to listen. I'm definitely going to be uh, on board. And once a month, I, I often talk about how I have so many podcasts on my listening schedule uh, that it's difficult to add new ones. But a, once a, a monthly release certainly is not over uh, overtaxing on my schedule. So I don't think I'll have any problem working you guys into the rotation. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it, it shouldn't be too bad, especially... From the ones we've recorded so far, I mean, we're only five or six episodes into recording, but so far they're all in that 30 to 90 minute range. So even then it's not like, yeah, it's once a month, but it's 10 hours. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, I, I guess you have a similar uh, time frame to what I do here as far as, uh, you know, you, you have your discussion and you move on. You're not looking to break it down scene by scene necessarily, mm-hmm. unless the movie calls for it. Now, today we are here uh, to discuss one that we probably could break down scene by scene and probably do a 24-hour podcast on. Uh, I know there have been actual film classes based on this. This, this is uh, the 1960s Alfred Hitchcock release of Psycho, uh, which is considered to be an all-time classic. Most people, I would say, when they talk about Alfred Hitchcock, this is the first movie that comes to mind. Uh, I don't necessarily think it is his single best movie. I do. I'm going to give away some of my thoughts. I do believe it's a classic, but it is not. If I if I'm listing my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies, it's probably second or third on my personal list. Uh, how do you guys just for overall, without giving away your Jaws ranking, what it, you know, what what do you think about this overall? Oh, Trey, it, it it's definitely one of. Hitchcock's top five, uh, but I think I agree with you. I would not put it at number one. I would say it's his most famous. 
There's, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Uh, how about you, Blaine? Yeah, it's, it is one of his stronger films, but for me, Rear Window takes the top slot in the Hitchcock pantheon. And for me personally, I'll give away North by Northwest as my top slot. Uh, I, I'm with Blaine. Rear Window's my top spot. I, I got introduced to Hitchcock through Jimmy Stewart, so okay, like, like Doctors, he's my first one. <laughs> well, now, uh, I mean, just to give a little bit of the Hitchcock uh, history, uh, I had seen this particular movie back in the 1970s when I was in grade school, and it was on, in an afternoon, I was homesick for the day. I guess I was in the later ages of, of grade school because I was homesick alone. My, my mom didn't feel the necessity to stay home with me. Uh, and I was sitting on the couch watching TV, and it was a, a cold winter day. And it was, you know, with daylight savings time, it was one of these days where around 4 o'clock it starts to get dark already. And I'm sitting on the couch at 4 o'clock, and it's getting dark, and I don't have any lights on. And I had this movie on, uh, on you know, one of the afternoon uh, movie channels. Or, you know, not movie channels because it wasn't cable, but, you know, one of the afternoon movie of the week or movie of the day uh, showings. Uh, looking back on it, it was incredibly butchered. Because I think they they squeezed this movie into a ninety minute slot with commercials, mm-hmm. Uh, and and looking back, there's so many scenes that were removed from it. It's it's kind of sad, but it still managed to have me on the edge of my seat and pretty scared at the time. Uh, you know, as far as the other some of the other movies, I didn't discover those until later. I think uh, as as a fairly young kid, I knew this movie and I knew The Birds. I didn't really know any other Alfred Hitchcock until at least I was in high school. And then some movies, such as Rear Window, which you mentioned, uh, they were subject to some legal entanglements. And in the mid-80s, as home video started to come into vogue, uh, they worked out the legal uh, issues with them, and they actually re-released them on the big screen because they hadn't been seen on TV and they hadn't been seen in the public consciousness for uh, over 20 years, uh, maybe even 30 in some cases. And I saw Rear Window for the first time on the big screen, which is a very cool way for that to have worked out. But again, we you know we may do Rear Window another day, and I'm going to bring us back to Psycho again. That was my first experience with Psycho. Uh, I've since seen it you know multiple times, but in in, in its complete uh, form. But what was your each first experience with this movie? Uh, I saw it in film studies class when I was taking that as an option in my physics degrees. So in in college. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and. It was actually an uh, intercession, so kind of summer school between second and third year. And what was what was your initial take on it at that time? Uh, I really enjoyed it. This was actually my first Hitchcock, believe it or not. So, yeah, and thankfully, uh, our prof told us as little as possible on the way in. Because like a lot of Hitchcock films, there are twists, there are turns. And he took a huge risk departing from standard story structure with this film and i would say it is best if you do not know what that twist is coming in so the i mean we've all talked about how this is in our you know top few hitchcock films even if it's not number one i think early in this podcast it's good enough to say we agree you should watch it and the less you know about it when you watch it the better it is yes so So maybe pause and watch now yeah if you haven't seen this and you haven't already been told what the uh, 
twists are. And you may or may not, you know, you may have not seen it, but already know the twist, in which case I guess it doesn't really matter because we're not going to spoil things that aren't in the public knowledge pretty much. But if you have not already heard the plot of this movie and the twists, I would certainly suggest you turn it off now and come back and listen to us afterwards. I think you'll enjoy the movie more that way, and I think you'll actually enjoy the podcast more that way. So with that said, on to Trey. I first watched it probably February of this year, which I know sounds odd, but yeah, growing up in the 80s, horror was always kind of a weak spot for me from a genre perspective, and this was always a quote-unquote horror film, so when I came to appreciate Hitchcock, I had purchased it, but it had just been sitting on my DVD shelf. And until my daughter started getting interested in watching Hitchcock films, I hadn't pulled it out and popped it in. Now, how old is your daughter, Trey? Uh, She just turned 12, so she was 11 when we watched it. Which is probably about the age I was when I watched it, and so I I, I certainly wouldn't uh, throw any stones at that. Uh, And I do think that in the current day and age, uh, that this is not nearly as shocking as it was 50 years ago. I think 50 years ago, people would have bristled at the thought of an 11-year-old watching this. Uh, but now you look at it and you say, oh, it's relatively tame by today's standards. <laughs> now, Yeah, I would I'm, say most 11-year-olds can handle this. Yeah, uh, you know, unless you have, like, for example, my daughter is somebody who does not like horror movies. She's very uncomfortable with them. She would not enjoy watching this, and she's 18 now. But if you have somebody who embraces the horror genre, I don't think there's really, really much problem with the uh, with the age on that. And this isn't, I don't see this so much as horror and more as suspense. And that's the first thing I think I'm going to talk about. And I've talked about this in prior podcasts. Uh, There's a famous interview with Alfred Hitchcock, where he talks about the difference uh, between suspense and being scary. Uh, And he talks about, he gives the the hypothetical of uh, there being a bomb in a room with people sitting at a table talking and you could have two different ways of presenting that. The first of which would be uh, nobody knows that the bomb is there. The people are talking. And then the bomb explodes and everybody in the audience jumps because it was unexpected and it's shocking. The second scenario, which is the preferred Hitchcock method and preferred for me as well, is to make it suspenseful. You have the people talking, you show the bomb, you show the timer ticking down, you show that the people are unaware of the bomb, and then you have the people in the audience saying, oh my god, get out of there, what are you doing? And the suspense just builds and builds and builds until you finally get an explosion. So you're not going to be shocked by the explosion, you're not going to jump at the explosion necessarily, uh, but the suspense is much greater as you're watching that scene. So you're, you're talking about a difference between a momentary, uh, f- you know, moment of fear or a prolonged p- period of suspense. And I would always prefer the suspense. I definitely agree with that. And as a lover of film, there, there are certain beats in this film that you just can't help but pick up by osmosis, just in learning film history and whatnot. And I would say the most famous scenes, for lack of a better word, or set pieces, are not the most suspenseful in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And some of that is probably because we know it. It's the, oh, it's this part. And, you know, it's, it's taken some of the edge off when it's anticipated before it comes up. But, yeah, it, Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense 
for a, a list of pretty exceptional reasons, mm-hmm. frankly. And, and, and many of the movies, including uh, the two that we spoke about, uh, Rear Window and North by Northwest, uh, those are, are very far from horror movies, but they both mm-hmm. have very suspenseful scenes in them and you know, live up to that. I think, I think people think of Hitchcock as a master of horror, and that's people who don't really know Hitchcock. And they're thinking of the birds, and they're thinking of Psycho, and they're really not thinking about the rest of his uh, very, very long filmography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Now they're just no. not thinking of the trouble with Harry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I have to say that's not one of my favorites, but we could talk about that another day, perhaps. Uh, one of the things I think is a big misconception about this movie, and I think it goes hand in hand with what I talked about earlier about watching it in a ninety-minute cut with commercials, so that the movie itself is cut down to about seventy minutes, and we're talking about the full running time on this movie is one hundred nine minutes. So you're talking about cutting. Uh, almost 40 minutes out of this movie. And the misconception is that Janet Lee has a cameo appearance at the beginning of the movie. She's quickly killed off and we move on to other things. And that's really not the case here. She's in the movie for nearly an hour before she's killed off. I think I looked at my clock on it and I think it's 52 minutes uh, before mm-hmm. the shower scene. So it, it is not the... Uh, you know, the, the, the quick run that people make it out to be. Uh, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this movie, which I think is appropriate uh, because she does get killed off halfway through the movie. But again, I think there's a misconception that she's in it for a very short time. And I think that misconception is carried out a little bit in the movie Scream, which tries to ape this movie and has Drew Barrymore in it in the beginning. And she's in it for probably a total of five minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, Hitchcock had two major technical challenges. He liked to set technical challenges for himself. You know, we talked about Rear Window. In that one, his challenge was to tell a movie with the camera stuck in one room. Uh, More famous challenge movies for him would be Rope and Lifeboat. One of the two technical challenges he set for himself in this one was trying to figure out if he could change the main character in a story halfway through. And that's what we have. Mm-hmm. So like you said, roughly halfway through the running time, our lead character, and to that point, our only point of view character, really, gets killed off. The only shift in perspective and point of view is just a few minutes before her death when we see her killer looking at her before her death in a peeping Tom fashion. And that's when it shifts. I so said that was one of the two major technical challenges he set for himself in this, and he pulled it off. There's not a lot of people who can change the lead character in a story halfway through and keep the audience engaged. I actually cannot think of another attempt, let alone another successful example. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a clean cut, too, because we have Janet Lee as the lead character for the first half of the movie, and we never meet Vera Miles. And then mm-hmm. Janet Lee's character is killed off. We meet Vera Miles, and obviously from that point forward, we never see Janet Lee again. So it is clearly two lead characters going through this. Uh, any thoughts, Trey? Yeah, it, in many ways, it's the same story for the length of the movie, but it's structured as almost two interrelated stories. You know, there's uh, Janet Lee as Marion Crane, and the bad decision she made and the consequences of those decisions. And then there's a beat, and then it's the investigation of the murder of the dead. 
to Marion mm-hmm. Crane. Now, I, I'm just thinking about other movies that have done that, and they've been since then. Uh, the one that jumps out to me, and I, again, I don't want to talk too much about these other movies in details, because first of all, this is not an episode about those movies, and second of all, we may discuss them at some point down the road. But the one that jumps out at me is the movie Full Metal Jacket, uh, which takes place during the Vietnam War and has the first half of it in, tr- in uh, basic training, and then the second half of it after a very big climactic moment is actually in Vietnam and I've had many many people tell me that they watch that movie for the first half and then they're done they don't need to see the second half because they feel that they've seen everything worth seeing again I'm not going to make this into a criticism of that movie but it does speak to how difficult it is to pull off exactly what we're talking about here uh, and to, to totally change the focus of the movie again to go from a uh, a murder to the investigation it is a a, a definite change of the focus so mm-hmm. you know it, it speaks volumes for how well hitchcock did this now i'm told that he was very true to the original source material which i've never read have either of you ever had any experience with the book psycho by robert block no no i haven't now now the book takes its cues from the uh, real-life story of Ed Gein, who was a, uh, a multiple murderer, uh, and he apparently had the bodies of people that he killed as trophies, and he is the inspiration for this story. He was also the inspiration for uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he was the inspiration for... Uh, the killer in Silence of the Lambs, not the Anthony Hopkins character, uh, Buffalo Bob or Buffalo Bill, actually. Uh, yeah. So By Ted Levine. Right. So there's, yeah. there's you know, it, it, it is a famous story. At the time that the book was written, that was not that long ago. Uh, the book was from 1959. I believe Ed Gein was captured in the public eye around 1957. The movie came out in 1960, so we don't have a, a, a tremendous passage of time for these movies. Now, the other ones took came later down the road, so there was a little bit more of a public knowledge of it. Uh, but I find that to be a little bit of a fascinating aspect of this, is that you know it is actually based on some level of reality. <laughs> Although that's just thinking about that makes it a little bit more frightening. Yeah, the the beats that Block took from Gein was. Gein had a very close codependent relationship with his mother, and there was talk of some of his trophies being an attempt to recreate his mother or find a way to be his mother. Yeah, and he apparently had a brother who uh, had a lot of issues with that, <laughs> with that relationship, so he kind of saw problems developing. So it, it's it's interesting. It's you know they definitely went off off of it. Um, the whole aspect of making Norman a taxidermist and keeping these trophies of these birds, and then basically doing that with his mother, I find that to just be so disturbing. <laughs> uh, and it it is one of the more frightening aspects of this movie. But it also speaks to the 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 fear that this movie creates isn't necessarily again jump scares and things of that nature it's more that as you think about it it's like oh boy <laughs> this is just you know truly horrible yeah this is you were talking before about how it's horror versus suspense this is classic horror this is the way universal started making horrors when they had their heyday in the 30s and 40s where it's not 
about the gore and it's not about the jump scares. It's about making you feel afraid. And a lot of that comes from the suspense. Now, later on, when you get to your Texas Chainsaw Massacres and Friday the 13th, which is a franchise that I think has referenced this in more ways than people may realize, right? That's all, you know, it's getting more into the slasher and the horror and into the jump scares. And that was a bit of a shift. And I think the jump scares became a more popular thing to do in the movies as, as you know, the slasher movies became more popular and especially on the, uh, for lack of a better word, the lesser ones, the ones that were handled by less deft hands. Uh, you know, I think the jump scare is, is, is a fairly easy thing to do. You know, you create a, a, a quiet scene of somebody walking through and then, you know, if possible, you throw a little suspenseful music in, in, into it, and then you just have the killer jump out at people. Uh, you know, it, it's it's going to get the people in the audience, uh, you know, at the edge of their seat a little bit. Yeah, but, well, unless but it's it the is first a, five minutes, then it's the cat that jumps out and not the killer. Yeah, and that's it, it's it to me, it's a cheap uh, a cheap way of making movies. Uh, again, I, I prefer the suspense to the jump, and. My dog is jumping on me just to try and make sure he can get, she can get into the podcast with us. Um, now, uh, just by way of development, apparently this this book that we just discussed was found by one of Hitchcock's assistants, and she read it and gave it to him. He was on board pretty quickly to try and make this, but he did have some trouble selling it. Uh, from a production standpoint, standpoint and getting it uh, made, uh, he had to do all sorts of uh, agreements to uh, cut down the budget, cut down the uh, production staff. Uh, it's one of the reasons it was done in black and white, although it's uh, commonly said that it was to do it was done to avoid blood being red in the shower scene for censor uh, uh, purposes. Uh, although I'm sure that's you know he might have. I, I suspect he agreed to do it in black and white to save money. And then decided he could show more blood in that scene because of that, as opposed to wanting to put the blood in the scene and deciding to make it in black and white. That's my guess on that. Yeah, he ended up producing this himself. He had a contract with Paramount to, to release one more Hitchcock film. He was completely on board with this, but Paramount was not. So he ended up saying, fine. And he fronted the production budget himself. So he and his wife were you know, taxed out to the limit financially to get this movie made because he was that devoted to it. And Alma Revel, his wife, was not quite as keen on it. And Paramount was hesitant because his last experimental film was Vertigo. And even though that's well regarded now, it was not a financial success when it was released. And part of the reason they weren't fronting him is because he had sort of lost some public stature by selling himself with television because Alfred Hitchcock Presents was going into season five that year. Um, and it lasted seven seasons in that form and then became the Alfred Hitchcock Hour for three more seasons. And so part of this slight was, you know, he kept hearing people bashing the TV crews and having worked in both medium at the time and being one of the few people who did, he was the one saying, it's not that the TV people are less talented it's that they have less time and resources. And that's why TV shows don't look like movies because movies aren't cranking out 39 hours a year like the TV people are. So when he was in that financial situation, the only way he could fund this, this was his second technical challenge. He used the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV crew to make this movie. None of the crew had 
used movies before or had made movies before. They were pretty much all exclusively television. And he was the one that said, no, the TV crews really are that good if you give them the time and the resources that movies have. So aside from giving them camera upgrades, everything else was just the TV crew filming this movie the way Alfred Hitchcock Presents would be filmed if they had this much production lead time. Yeah, over over the last two years or so, I've become much more familiar with Alfred Hitchcock Presents because it's a show I hadn't really watched or had exposure to to any significant degree over my life. But uh, one of the cable channels here, I think it's MeTV, uh, shows two episodes every morning at about 5 a.m. here. Uh, and what I was doing was I was DVRing both episodes every day. Now, that would give me 14 episodes a week, which was more than my time constraints would allow. But what I would do is I'd look over those 14 episodes and pick out the ones that sounded interesting or had stars in them that interested me. And I went through the seven seasons that way and uh, have seen, I would say, at least half of the episodes uh, of that series. And it it really was a well-done show. And uh, I think by virtue of his reputation and relationships he had made, Hitchcock was able to get a lot of stars who would not otherwise appear on TV to have appeared on that show, uh, as well as a lot of upcoming stars uh, in a way that you see them on like the Twilight Zone. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it was it was a well-done show, and, and it, it, it allowed him to show that he had a sense of humor about himself and about, uh, you know, about just the industry in general, because he would do the short vignettes at the beginning and the end, uh, mm-hmm. which were usually comedic in nature, uh, in contrast to what the show was. But again, I don't want to go too too far off of this particular movie. Uh, I, I, I will jump in just sure. to bring another uh, tie to this film. The first project he worked on with Vera Miles was the pilot for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It's an episode called Revenge. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that's, like I said, I, I, you see a lot of people, uh, uh, one in particular that jumps out at me is Joseph Cotton, who was not really a TV actor, but he was in, I think, four episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, and there's a lot of others that, uh, that if you look to it, you could see. Uh, but yeah, I think the relationships he had with, uh, with people in general worked their way into that show and, and vice versa. So let's talk a little bit about the casting in this movie. And I think the first person we have to hit on is Janet Leigh. Uh, you know, she was a fairly big star at that time. Uh, and and viewed as being you know the star of this movie at least presented as being the star of the movie and again that's where some of the controversy came in and again famously people think of her as you know only at the beginning but she was in half of the movie so she was significant in it uh, I thought she was terrific I think she she played the fear and paranoia of what she was doing so well and it's a combination of not only her plus the way the script played out plus the way he directed it, showing these scenes, showing these angles of what she's looking at, and also Bernard Herrmann's score, which just ramped up the uh, the paranoia a little bit. Uh, so I, I thought she was perfect in this role. Oh, I agree, Paul. My, my favorite suspenseful bit to me in this entire movie is her being tailed by the cop and her whole interaction with the used car salesman. Mm-hmm. Which, which, by the way, is a scene that was fully cut out of the television version. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And it's a used car salesman that you may recognize. Uh, yeah, who played the part? I'm, I'm trying to, to place him. Yeah. Um, if, 
if you're a fan, I mean, he, he's one of those guys that's in a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. He, to me, the one that, that strikes me was his role from Star Trek The Next Generation as Kevin Uxbridge, the alien who took human form and was torturing Deanna Troy with the music box because he just kept recreating his wife after the alien attack wiped out the planet. Okay, yeah, I, I remember that. All right. Yeah, he's... Uh, I, I like the way his part is written because he's just so, like, world-weary. It's, you know, he starts off, uh, I don't want to fight, I don't want an argument, I don't want trouble. And then he's, you know, when he gives the price, he's like, uh, oh, you always have time to haggle over the price, and she doesn't, and you can see, like, the shock in his face. But that also hel- yeah. helps to ramp up her paranoia, because now she starts imagining the scene of, of him speaking to the cop afterwards, saying, oh, I can't, you know, she just paid cash, something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And to give, John Anderson is the actor who plays California Charlie, to give him credit, like you say, the way they have the banter, he's not in that much, but he walks that fine line where the way he delivers the lines, you know that this is a routine he does with every client and he's trying to keep it fresh, but it's still a routine. So he's playing it like it's a script, but naturally scripted, yes. so to speak. Like this is his sales script that he has honed because it has worked in the past. And he, he could portray that. You know, it's fairly natural, and he's, you know, zigging and zagging to make the sale, but there's still some rote lines, and you could hear how his intonation changes when he's hits those key lines. So it's just, I, mean, I would say across the board, there's not one miscast role, but there's a lot that get overlooked. Yeah, and, and this would be one of them. They're bang on. Yeah, I mean, that and, of course, the other famous Did You Spot It face, there's a couple of them. Uh, there's Patricia Hitchcock who's Alfred's daughter. She is Janelle's co-worker mm-hmm. uh, earlier in the film. And then, of she, course, she the was actually in quite a few, the door. She was in quite a few episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents also, by the way. She was, yeah. And, uh, of course, did you guys catch the police officer who opens the door for them at the end with a non-speaking role? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yes, uh, Ted Knight. Yes. Yeah, that's that was one of the things I had... Again, I had seen this already, but I also had a film class where they went through this, and that was one of the big reveals that the teacher had for everybody. Because what he would do is he'd show us the movie in its entirety, and then he would spend the next several classes with slides from the movie showing us the different things that Hitchcock did with you know camera angles or uh, you know the set design or whatever to try and uh, create an image of strength, an image of weakness, an image of suspense or whatever. And then eventually he had the slide of Ted Knight and said, does anybody recognize this guy? And at the time, the Mary Tyler Moore show was either still on or shortly after it was done. And uh, you know, so everybody knew who Ted Knight was, but nobody had recognized him. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm not familiar with him from Mary Tyler Moore show because I'm just young enough to have really missed that. Too close for comfort? I, yeah, I... I'm aware of him from that, but it blows me away that he's getting a speaking role because <laughs> I know the, uh, for me, I know mostly as, meanwhile, in the Hall of Justice. Oh, yes. Okay. So I'm hitting on all, all, all the ones that, that were in it for you. Yeah. So uh, did just the, for, just to go back to him for a moment, California Charlie, uh, played by John Anderson, he, I, I quickly took a look at his filmography, and he was primarily a TV actor, uh, appearing on so many shows that he would become one of those guys that, you know, you recognize him, you don't know from where. So, uh, moving on from Janet Lee, uh, or actually, let's talk a little bit more about her. Uh, you, you mentioned, the, you know, her co-worker played by Pat Hitchcock. I think that's just a great scene where they're there and the... Uh, you know the, the the whole the whole scene that sets her up to to make the uh, 
the theft in the first place where, where she, she, you know, gets the, uh, the rich man who's flirting with her and, you know, keeps basically reveals too many facts that he's got this $40,000 all in cash and, uh, just gives her the reason to do what she does and ultimately cause her own demise. Uh, I just think that's a, a great scene. It, it develops fairly quickly, uh, you know, you, but you learn, you, you meet these characters, you kind of know exactly who and what they are right away, and mm-hmm. it just sets up the plot for the whole, you know, for, for the dominoes to fall. Yeah, and they, they, they did that so well, setting up her motivations, because, I mean, it opens when you find out she's having an affair with a married man, or a recently divorced man, like... Yeah, recently divorced because he says he's uh, he's living in a little apartment because that's mm-hmm. all he could afford because of his uh, alimony. Yeah, and that's that's so the reason he doesn't want to get married is because he can't afford it, not because of any other reason. So now she's got the temptation with this forty thousand dollars in cash available. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hitchcock being Hitchcock, he doesn't leave it at that. So there's in that scene, it is an intimate scene. So she's down to brassiere and skirt, and the, I think the it's guy is I think it's just a slip. Actually, I don't even think it's oh, a skirt. Slip. Okay. Uh, yeah, but the key thing you might notice in that scene, she's dressed entirely in white because she's still innocent and pure. After she has stolen the money to set this up, it's black undergarments and dark clothes on top. And then when she has her, her change uh, of perspective and she's decided, no, she's going to go back, face the music, turn over the money that she hasn't spent, find a way to recover the money she has spent to pay it all back. And again, she sets out light clothes to wear after her shower, removes the dark clothes and, you know, goes to shower is like a a cleansing ritual. And then the movie goes in a completely different direction. And now speaking of the shower scene, uh, I don't know if you guys experienced anything with this, but uh, back in 1991, 1992 was my first time where I went to Universal Studios in Florida and they had the house, not the actual Bates Motel, they had the house uh, set up on a hill so that you could take a picture with it. And then they had a psycho, uh, not a ride, but a, uh, an attraction. Uh, and, and the whole attraction was about the filming of the famous shower scene. So routinely what they would do is they would have somebody grab somebody off of the line to play the Norman Bates role in the shower scene. And I was fortunate enough to be the guy for the time I was there. Uh, so they, they have you come up onto stage, or actually they have you backstage first, and they, they dress you in the, the mother's dress with the wig, and they give you a rubber knife, and they, you know, they introduce it to the audience or whatever, and then they're filming the scene, and you have to come over, pull the shower curtain, and then stab away. Uh, so that, that just added another level of fun to this for me, is that I, I got to, to do that in a scene, and then see on the screen that they show how they took the scene that you just filmed and edited it into the shower scene. And, and it really was fun to, to do that. But in order to get to that, we have to meet Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. And I feel sorry to some extent for Anthony Perkins because he was so well cast in this that I think it, it carried over for the rest of his life. I think it was a mixed blessing because I think it gave him more fame that he otherwise would have had. But I think it also probably put an end to his having much variation in his acting career at that point. It it did. uh, I I did note, and I haven't seen all of them, but particularly later in his life, he was able to parlay that into some level of creative control that let him 
direct when perhaps otherwise he wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, well, he did go on to do... He was in Psycho 2. I don't recall if he was in Psycho 3. Uh, I don't remember where it went from there. But, uh, you know, he, he publicly praised it and talked about how wonderful it was to have done it. So, you know, he certainly did the right thing as far as his public persona goes. But I got to think to some extent he probably hated being typecast after this. Yeah, looking at his IMDb, he was in all four Psycho films. Okay, there you go. Yeah, and it's in the early 90s he started getting more work in titles with, um, you know, German and Spanish titles to them. So Mm -hmm. it was, I'm looking at what he was getting in North America. I mean, of course, there's the Black Hole, which is my first introduction to him. But then there's other suspense and horror mysteries for the most part. Catch-22 he was in. But yeah, I think he became that guy where when you see him... You weren't seeing Anthony Perkins. You were seeing Norman Bates. Right. And, and it became difficult to dissociate. And he was he was masterful in the role. I mean, and that's part of the reason why you why you think that. Uh, but his his line delivery is just so well done. Uh, when he occasionally stammers, uh, you know, the you see him like thinking as he's coming up with these things. And as you learn at the end of the movie, he isn't actually aware of what he's doing. You know, he, he doesn't have any malicious intent, at, at least not as Norman. As, as mother, he does. But as Norman, he doesn't have any malicious intent. Uh, and he doesn't know that he's also mother. So it really is, a, I think it's a difficult role to play well. And I think he just did it a, a, as well as you possibly could. Because he seems totally realistic in, in his line delivery and his approach to the part. My favorite scene of his... Um, I'll say second favorite is when he and Marion are talking right before she goes into the shower and she's let her guard down and she's now relating real details about herself and they do not jive what she said when she registered. There's, there's just a look that Anthony Perkins gets just this slight subtle reaction to where you can tell mother somewhere behind his eyes has noticed an opportunity. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's, it's like I said, I think it's it's fairly subtle the way he plays it, especially in those early scenes when he's talking about his mother. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just, I, I, I am very impressed by his acting in this movie, and I feel bad that he didn't get a chance to spread those acting chops a little bit more. Uh, yeah, this is one of those, you get movies with twist endings fairly often, it's hard to do it well. Sometimes the twist feels unjustified and it, it throws the audience out. Sometimes once you know the twist, there's nothing left in the film to enjoy. Mm-hmm. This is one of those where once you know the twist, you can go back and rewatch it and it becomes a different experience, but it's still totally consistent and you still see, oh yeah, and this is the best kind of twist where if you're going in absolutely blind and know nothing of the film, it will shock and surprise you but the second time through when you're looking at it you're saying yeah the hints were there we had the indicators we could have seen this coming we just didn't because of the the sleight of hand where when he's giving you the hint so when hitchcock sets it up so that you get a hint to the true relationship between norman and his mother there's something else going on that you have greater emotional investment in so the, the clues were there, but you weren't paying attention to that because you were focused over here. Yeah, well, and 
that's an intentional misdirection. He's trying to get you focused elsewhere and to think other things, and again, doing so masterfully. Now, this is uh, a point here because we, you know, we started to talk a little bit about the famous shower scene, and uh, this is kind of one of the, for lack of a better word, again, I'm going to say stunts about this movie. Uh, and at Alfred Hitchcock's insistence, they uh, would not admit to anybody to the movie after it began. And I remember a day, a time, when going to the movies was not as regimented as it is now. Uh, you'd decide, oh, let's go see this new movie that opened up. And you'd just go to the theater, buy a ticket, and walk in without even looking at the starting time. <laughs> and and if, if you got there halfway through the movie, you'd sit down, you'd watch what happened, and then you'd stay for the next showing and watch up until the point where you came in, and that's where that expression came from, this is where I came in. Uh, that was not an uncommon approach at all back then. So for them to say we're not letting anyone in after the movie starts was revolutionary, and apparently the theater owners were very opposed to it initially until this actually was one of the early movies where they had very, very long lines before the movie started, for exactly that reason, but the buzz about it was tremendous, so people started to come early and be there and wait online to go in, and the theater owners obviously loved that. So it was controversial when they did it, and it's you know very famous that they did it, uh, but you know very interesting piece of movie history there. Mm -hmm. uh, now going into the shower scene, had either or both of you seen that? Before you actually saw the movie, yes, yeah, I I had seen photo montages, but not video. So so going into the movie, you you did know that at some point we are losing <laughs> we are losing our main character. Yeah, that what surprised me about it on my first viewing was how early it happens. I mean, you say people talk about it, and you you know modern audiences are often surprised it's not in the first twenty minutes, um, but. You know, everything I saw, she was on all the marketing materials. I figured she's going to be the star. You know, he, he got me with that switching the lead character. I mean, I've been thinking about it since we decided to do this podcast two weeks ago. And only while we're discussing this have, have I thought, I think the only other movie I could think of that shifted that focus successfully was Ridley Scott's Alien, what, 18 or 19 years later, mm. which okay. starts with sort of John Hurt as the star and the main focal point, And then... He kind of passes the torch. Right. I, I don't think quite as dramatically as we do in this one. But, yeah, that is a good point and a, and a good comparison. Yeah, so I, I don't remember. I know uh, before I had seen this, having always been a movie fan, I had seen various shows where they showed clips from movies. And I'm certain I had seen the shower scene at some point. But I don't think as I was watching it, it registered. I don't think I remembered uh, that this was going to happen, and I don't think it was as shocking to me, or I don't rather, I don't think I was geared for it. It was as shocking to me when it happened. Uh, you know, I, I knew there was a shower scene, but I, I didn't really have any kind of uh, conception as to where it was going to come in the movie or how it was going to go. So to see her killed off, and again on a TV cut, so it was like in the first 15 minutes of the movie, uh, it, it was kind of shocking and. It definitely caught me off guard. Yeah, but Paul, you may remember this. Um, when AMC, American Movie Classics, was where you went 
before there was a Turner movie classics. When, when AMC was TMC. <laughs> right. They had a documentary interview series called Reflections on the Silver Screen. And they had done an episode with Anthony Perkins. And I think that was the first time I had seen a clip of the shower scene. Mm. All right. So, so you were fully aware of what you were getting. Plus, if you only saw this a few weeks ago, <laughs> then uh, or a few months ago, which did you say? I'm sorry. A few months ago. Yeah, so you, I mean, you, I, I doubt anything there caught you too off guard. But that it, doesn't take it, away from the quality of the, uh, of, of the, just how the scene is put together, the editing of it, uh, which I think is masterful. Well, and even then, that in that conversation, they focused on the shower scene. So there were other twists in the movie that I was completely unaware of. So moving on to the second half, we meet Vera Miles, and certainly looks to me like she could be Janet Lee's sister. There was, you know, just from a physical casting point of view, I thought she uh, she seemed to fit the role very well. Uh, her part isn't as engaging as uh, Janet Lee's. She she serves a purpose. You like her character, but you don't feel as, or at least I didn't feel quite as. Uh, as wrapped up in her as I was with Janet Lee. Janet Lee, uh, the way the story focused on her made you feel a certain amount of kinship or connection to her. Whereas Vera Miles was more like she's serving a purpose now. You're not there to, uh, to, to connect to her so much as to connect to what she's doing. At least that's the feeling I had with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's almost like the, the Columbo stand-in. We we now know there's been a murder. We know who's responsible for it. How are they going to catch him? And the detective who had been chasing Marion Crane now gets pulled up to the forefront. So it's really these three people working almost in opposition to the local police force who are reluctant to believe what they're hearing until the evidence really starts to mount. And you're trying to find out, like, what's going on with Norman and has he done this before? Is he going to do it again? Where, you know, what's happening with him? So Vera Miles, I mean, I, I would say the second half, Vera Miles is the, the second most prominent female lead. I mean, we talked about how Janet Lee was only nominated for supporting actress as opposed to just lead actress, which makes sense given that she's killed halfway through, but Janet Lee is still the most prominent female character. I would almost say that the second star is Norman Bates himself. Oh, but absolutely. I, as I, I, the killer, you don't want you don't want to be him, or you don't want him to be the character that you're identifying with. I I don't think you're so much identifying with him as you are again, kind of following him, and you're you're learning about him as you go along. And he he is the focus of the movie, but I don't think he is he's he's the focus at that point, but he's not your protagonist. Yeah, it's he. It's almost like watching a World War II movie and just waiting for someone to get Hitler, right? He he is there and he is a focal point and you know he is driving the narrative, but you're just waiting for someone to step up and stop him. And yeah, because I, of the strength of Perkins' performance, you're just totally engrossed in him while it's, you're waiting. But you're, you're yeah. I'm sorry, Trey, talk, you, you talk. I don't want to cut you off. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, I, I, I agree. I, I think Vera Miles gets lost uh, when... You have Martin Balsam enter the scene. Um, I'm blanking on the actor's name, but the character Sam Loomis, Marion's boyfriend, Vera Miles' Lila has to compete for screen time with all three of them. Yeah, she does. Um, 
I agree. And, and Sam Loomis was John Gavin, by the way. Um, no problem. Uh, you know, one of the things I think, as you watch this the first time, and it's hard to put myself back into that situation because it's so long ago. But you, you know, Blaine, you, you compared it to uh, Columbo, knowing who the killer is and seeing them actually figure out how. I'm not so sure that I agree with that because I seem to think that on a first viewing, when they talk about his mother being gone and they start revealing, you know, Norman's mother died or whatever, I was wondering if the twist was going to be that she was still alive because they give you every reason to believe that the mother is the murderer. I don't, I don't think I thought Norman was the murderer until the end when the wig comes off his head. Yeah, you know what? You're, you're probably right because even on my first viewing... I I had been spoiled about the true nature of the relationship between Norman and his mother. So I knew it was the, the multiple personalities and that his mother was dead before the movie started. Yeah. So, And I might have actually learned that when we did the Universal Studios California tour, which also had the house set up and somebody in the, the dress with the rubber knife would just come charging out. So they, wouldn't, they didn't show how that scene was made. But Psycho was still a part of that tour. Yeah, the... Hitchcock does such a great job. The, the sheriff drops that line that, you know, uh, Mrs. Bates has been dead for 10 years, and your assumption is he's incompetent and wrong. Yeah, that's that's what I believe my thought process was. Again, it's hard to go back, whatever it was, you know, 40 years, uh, 20, 35 years, whatever it is, and, and to remember exactly what I was thinking at that time. But I did not know that Norman Bates thought he was his mother uh spoilers uh you know so i think that i thought that was the mystery is how is the mother still alive and how is she uh going about this mm -hmm. and th there are hints to that because after that if you remember at the end of that conversation the sheriff's going well wait a minute if you know that there's a woman in that house and norman's referring to her as his mother then who's buried in that cemetery right right so, so it definitely leaves that open to you where you're thinking, oh, they buried the wrong person and she's still alive. Like, Yeah, so I guess that whole, the Columbo perspective was just because I had been spoiled on it. So. so I think that's all. Well, I mean, we didn't really hit too much on Martin Balsam yet. Uh, I really liked his part in this because you you just assume as soon as he joins the cast, again, halfway through, he joins, you know, what two minutes after Vera Miles joins. Uh, you just assume he's going to be the one to solve this, <laughs> and he goes out fairly quickly. Uh, you know, it, it's it, to me that was just another shock kill uh, when he gets when he gets uh, murdered by Norman slash mother. Uh, and while the scene is filmed in a way where it just feels a little strange, it's also kind of disturbing where they show him like teetering at the top of the stairs when he goes to fall. It's not quite as realistic as I would hope, but it's also very dis discomforting or disquieting because as somebody who has a level of discomfort with heights, to think about like being at the top of the stairs in that teetering moment just before you fall, it, it, it really just creates a like you know visceral feel for me. Well, it, I, I imagine they use some form of rear projection for it, but it still had a sense of depth when he falls. Yeah, they they actually had him in a, a chair rig with the rear projection of the the stairs moving, so that they could 
sort of rock the chair while he was in it. So you get the feeling of instability in that he doesn't have his feet on the ground and it's not just someone acting like he's flailing. They're actually shaking and shuffling him. So that's part of what adds to the depth is you know the actor does not have sure footing when they're filming that. So even though you can... If you understand the depth of focus, you can see that the depth of focus doesn't line up in that scene. Mm-hmm. So the level of focus in the rear projection in the camera in that scene is a mismatch to most of the film. The only other scenes it matches are scenes where you're watching someone driving a car with the same rear projection. So yeah, you, you could see that there's rear projection there, but it's easy to get lost and miss it the first time through because the way they set it up, they didn't just want it to seem like someone standing on the ground flailing his arms. They had him in a chair that they could rock. Now, so. another, another aspect to that is when you've already killed off Janet Lee unexpectedly, then you killed off Martin Balsam unexpectedly. It makes you feel like Vera Miles is in true danger of getting killed when, when you're watching the you know what's left of the movie at that point. So the stakes are very high as you watch it. It's not the, oh, everybody's going to come out okay. Yeah, the only characters that really feel like they're going to escape with their lives are the Bates family. Mm-hmm. How many members you think there are. <laughs> exactly. So now, any other filming techniques that you uh, would care to discuss? Anything else in the editing, the filming that you know that stood out to you? You, you talked about the the shower sequence, which had so so many takes, partly to avoid the censors and partly to keep it shocking. Okay, and I'm going to interrupt you there because I just I was just reading up on it a little bit, and they said uh, there was a scene part of that where the censors said they were able to see one of Janet Lee's breasts and they needed to have the scene edited. And apparently Hitchcock took the scene, waited three or four days and sent it back exactly as it had already been edited. And the uh, censor said, okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And it's, he, he did manage to get an exposed nipple in there very, very briefly, but for those sequences, it was actually a body double. So it's, you, you see Marion Crane's nipple, but not Janet Lee's. Um, so do, do we want to spend any time talking about the legacy of this? Well, I guess we should talk about finish talking about the the filmmaking of this before we move on to legacy and impact. All right, yeah, let's just put a post-it on that, and we'll make sure we get back to it before we call it a day. Uh, so uh, just, I mean, from a filming technique, the other scene that just jumps out at me, and I think it's also uh, almost as famous, is the end when they twofold, when they discuss how you know when when they explain everything to you they have the uh psychiatrist the prison psychiatrist explain exactly what's going on and everything you say everything he says you think oh that's what was going on there's nothing in there that feels like a cheat which is Mm -hmm. critical to this being successful in my mind because if there was anything in there where they say oh they just pulled that out of you know thin air and it you know it's not you know it's 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 not fair I think this movie then collapses in on itself. So that's really important. And then the final shot of Norman sitting in the chair and hearing the voiceover of Mother's thoughts, because at that this point, apparently Norman is totally gone, and the only voice in the head is Mother's. And she's talking about how she, you know, she, how she's letting Norman take the fall for her, uh, and that she's going to show them that she wouldn't hurt a fly. Uh, it's just chilling. And I just think that's that's a 
a great note to end the movie on. And that's my favorite scene from Anthony Perkins in the film. The look on his face, the little wry yeah. smile at the end. Again, it's chilling. Mm-hmm. And this, this is, if you are somebody who grew up on horror movies of current day, slasher films of the last 20 to 30 years, you might look at this movie and think, oh, this is mild, this is nothing, this isn't scary. Uh, You really need to look at it from the psychological perspective beyond just the slasher aspect of it. And I think that's where a lot of the horror actually comes from. Uh, You know, going into the mind of somebody like Ed Gein, uh, who was the basis for this movie, and trying to, to... take a normal person and to look at that mind and say, how does that work? I think is, is it's a, a, a very fascinating but frightening thing to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, the only other aspect of the movie I think we should just talk about is Bernard Herrmann's score, because I mentioned it briefly. Hitchcock says 33% of the success of this movie is based on Bernard Herrmann's score, and I don't necessarily disagree. You walk out of the movie and the actual major theme is one of the things that has stayed with you uh that and the uh and the actual slasher sound uh but also if you if you're watching it and you're paying attention to the score the different scenes as they're going on as they're ramping up the the suspense in the beginning of her stealing the money when this is seeming like it could just be a you know a a robbery caper uh and then the scenes when they're in the house and everything the score is just tremendous uh, and just as an aside note, apparently Bernard Herrmann would not accept the uh, lesser fee for his work uh, that Hitchcock was trying to get everybody to take in order to get this produced. He he still demanded his full full payment, which I guess Hitchcock felt it was important enough, so he rallied up and got that for him. Hmm. Now, this was a fairly huge success at the time. And as we talked about earlier, uh, Blaine and I know what the box office and the production costs were on this, but we've kept Trey in the dark to this point. So Trey, do you have an estimate as to what you think it would cost to make this movie, knowing that they kept the uh, the budget as low as they could? I, I'm Again, think 1960. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to guess $2 million. I don't think that's a bad guess at all. It is inflated on what they paid, but I think considering... <laughs> what they pay on movies today. Uh, the the budget is listed as $806,947, so almost a million. But uh, I don't think two million is a bad guess. That said, do you have an estimate as to what the box office would be? Uh, again, I'm horrible at this, uh, just because we're talking 1960, but I, I know that this was kind of the proto-blockbuster before Jaws, so I'm going to say... Uh, 40 million again I think that's a really good guess uh, it's, it's listed as 50 million okay but I think I think you're, I think you're very close to on the money all things considered and um, I'm kind of impressed that you're guessing uh, so now uh, Blaine I think you, you know you wanted to talk a little bit about the legacy of the movie yeah looking at it this has just had so much influence in others I mean we talked about you know, how there, there was a shift in the 70s and 80s to more the, the slasher horror. And I wonder how much that built off the success of the shower scene and how famous the shower scene was. And if we look at the three big slasher successes that launched that, you've got the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 
which as Paul already mentioned, was inspired by the same real-life events. You've got Halloween, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, daughter of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. So there's the, the direct lineage there. And then you've got Friday the 13th, I think was the other, like, of the first three big ones before mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street, I would say, would be number four. And Friday the 13th, I watched for the first time this month, there are definite echoes of Bernard Herrmann's Psycho score in the soundtrack for that one. And at about the 52-minute mark, there's a killing in the bathroom from someone who's just getting into the shower, which is another hallmark or another callback to Psycho. And most notably, we find out that the killer is a mother who is having conversations with a personality of her son in her mind in the final sequence. It's not nearly as well set up because you don't actually see Jason's mother until she's on screen in the last 10 or 15 minutes. But yeah, this is a mother with multiple personality disorder following the death of her son. And then, of course, it's her son back from the dead in the later films. Well, I'll tag on to that. Um, Sam Loomis has the most interaction directly with Norman towards the end. So you could kind of make a case for him becoming uh, the protagonist instead of uh, Vera Miles. And the protagonist in Holly, the male protagonist in Halloween's character's name is Doctor Loomis. Yeah, good point. So yeah, this yeah. this has definitely got long range, uh, f- ripple effect on other movies that were made. Uh, very very few of which you could really have uh, put into anywhere near the class of this one. Uh, you know, when we talk about. Uh, Ed Gein and his influence when we talk about Silence of the Lambs, that's a movie that you might be able to have a discussion and a comparison with this one because it's also a, a classic movie. Uh, but, you know, when you look to uh, Friday the 13th, as, as you mentioned, uh, that's this type of story done in much less deft hands and, and mm-hmm. not nearly the cinematic triumph that this one is. Uh I don't know, you know, where where you fall on that particular movie, but I think it's uh, to me it looks a lot like it's thrown together. I, I don't I don't see it as a lot a hell of a lot of deep thought put into that one, whereas I see Hitchcock putting this together, you know, scene by scene, shot by shot, you know, so carefully. I see this as being his baby, and I see that as being one of, hey, we could make a good movie, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I I, I released my podcast covering Friday the 13th on October 14th of this year and really so I don't think, more I, I, don't think I, I don't think I've seen that oh yeah it was the make me watch it podcast um, the, the short version of that is um, yeah well I don't think it, it was trying to rip off psycho I think it was generally trying to show respect to psycho it was made by filmmakers who don't have Hitchcock's skill so yeah. it, it, it doesn't come off as the cheap knockoff quickly produce things that you get in the, the 50s and 60s. And I mean, I've got a number of box sets of 50 movies that I spent 10 bucks on each, and there's a lot of cheap rip-offs in those. That Friday the 13th, it was just filmmakers who were new enough to the craft and not as skilled as Hitchcock, but they were generally trying to pay tribute and wanted to make something good. They just didn't quite know how to make something great. Well, even Jaws, I mean, thematically, no similarities whatsoever, no similarities in story structure, anything like that. But Psycho proved that there was an appetite for a suspense film with a little bit of 
horror or thrills mixed in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And and you know, when we start talking Jaws, when we talk Silence of the Lambs, now we're now we're in the same stratosphere at least. <laughs> uh, do I need to ask you guys where this ranks on the Jaws scale? I'm gonna anyway, but do I need to? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, knowing that this is in my top three, Hitchcock, and Hitchcock's one of my top two directors. And that I don't think any of us have had a single negative thing to say in the past hour. I'm pretty sure that the listeners can guess where we all land on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know what? I'm, I'm going to just speak for all three of us. This is Joyce. This is a yeah. great, great movie. Uh, and and the, on, the only negative I can give you is if you've heard so, so much about it that there's no surprises for you, and if you are the type of person who doesn't watch a movie and appreciate the actual art of the filmmaking, maybe you're just going to feel like, ho-hum, I've seen this before. But if you if you can appreciate filmmaking, and I think people who listen to podcasts like this can, uh, then I think you watch this, and even if you're not surprised by any of the events that go on in it, just seeing the level of the acting, the level of the editing, the score, uh, the, the story plot as it goes back and forth. Just so many things about this that there are there, are there to be appreciated uh, that I think you'd have to like it. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's not just us. If you go through rankings, if you go to the advanced search option in the Internet Movie Database, you can see how they rate every movie that came out in 1960. This is number one, beating out the Best Picture winner, which was The Apartment. You look at the IMDb top 250 films of all time. This is number 32. If you click the little link to say, okay, just show me ones in the horror genre, this becomes number one with Alien at number two and The Shining at number three. If you go to Letterboxd and say, show me movies from the year 1960, again, Psycho's number one, The Apartment's number two. If you say, show me the entire decade of the 1960s, then it's 2001 A Space Odyssey number one, Psycho number two. Like, so, so other people like this as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. E- even if you think you know the destination, the destination, this film's worth watching the journey to get there. Yes, and that's, that should be the truth in any movie that you, you know, that's worth seeing. If it's just the destination, probably not worth watching. Yeah, like I said before, anything with a twist, if you don't know about the twist coming in, it's worth watching at least twice, right? You watch it once to experience it not knowing the twist. The second time, it's a different experience when you know the twist and you're looking for evidence. This, I can still enjoy, and I'm up to eight or nine viewings because it it is so much about the journey, like Trey said. And share it with someone. Share it with someone who doesn't know the twist. Uh, I didn't know all of the twists, but I knew some of them. Um, and, And just watching it with my daughter who started... Who started out thinking that Psycho somehow referred to Janet Lee, and this was going to be about her breakdown because of the uh, theft? Got a com- got a really incredible film watching experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if if nothing else, at a minimum, I think if you have not experienced this, it might be your entry drug just to Hitchcock. And there's so many good movies in there to see. Oh, yes. So I definitely recommend that you check out this movie. By all means, it is Jaws. It is one of the greatest movies mm-hmm. of all time, as, as as evidenced by the uh, lists that Blaine just uh, gave you. Um, 
before we call it a day, I want to thank you guys for coming on, and I want you to pimp your show one more time just so that everybody remembers where to find it. Okay, yeah, it's 99 Years, 100 Films. It will be available in December of 2019, and um, I'm kind of doing all the uploading duties on it. It's, it actually started as some people who, who know Paul's history and mine podcasting together might remember the uh, 75 Greatest Marvels countdown where I had rotating guest hosts for the 75 Greatest Marvel comic stories. Uh, Paul was on that list. That was the original concept, but uh, it worked so well with Trey for the first couple episodes. I just said, well, forget that. Trey, do you want to be here for all of them? And he said, yes. So that is now the way it's going to work. With occasional third and maybe fourth voices, but it'll be at least the two of us every time. Yes, and, and I. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Trey. Sorry, real quick. I was going to say I think that came about because of the general episode of Is It Jaws and us talking on the Facebook group. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm thrilled yeah. to have inspired it, uh, and just to pull back the curtain a little bit. Uh, when we sign off here, these gentlemen are going to record an episode and. I was invited to come along for the ride, and I wish I had the time to do it, but my schedule today is not going to allow me to. So I'm going to lobby right now and say, please, please, please invite me on for a future episode, because I, I would look forward to that very much. Okay. Are there any particular Best Picture winners that you want to discuss? I'm going to take a the ones you enjoy, but ones that you, you say... Even if you want to come on and say, how the hell did this even get nominated? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at the early winners and see if there are any that have particular uh, strong feelings for me. Uh, and those are the ones that I'll throw out to you as possibilities. Obviously, I don't expect you to invite me for all of them. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I would love to, you know, I enjoy, I've enjoyed this conversation and I would enjoy uh, chances to have you guys back here and to come on to yours. So uh, let's, okay. let's try and make that happen. All right. Well, if you want to keep the Hitchcock thing going, Rebecca's not too far down the road. That one I would have to do a rewatch on. I haven't seen that in years. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, possibly. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Trey and Blaine, for coming on. And we'll see you all in two weeks. Happy Halloween, everyone. It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son. But I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now, as I should have, years ago. He was always bad. And in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Oh, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly.